Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the 2021 Anti-Poverty Forum, Roadmap for a New Generation of Welfare Reform. Please welcome our host, Jennifer Marshall, Senior Visiting Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Well, good morning and welcome to our 2021 Heritage Anti-Poverty Forum. I especially want to welcome all of you who are joining us online for this virtual event. Each year, this event brings together policy leaders at the federal and state level, along with neighborhood leaders who are working to restore lives and communities across the country. Our goal is to help more of our fellow Americans overcome poverty and dependence and to be able to pursue their hopes for the future. This year's agenda focuses somewhat more on policy than we have in years past. And our major reason for doing so is that we are at a time when proposals on Capitol Hill uh, for welfare, even as we meet, are being considered, and these represent a drastic departure from what has worked in the past. Our program today will sharpen the contrast between two very different ways of fighting poverty in America. The conversation will underscore why we must learn from what has worked if we want to serve our neighbors in need effectively. The most important policy lessons have come from 1996 welfare reform. President Clinton signed that law uh, in 20, 25 years ago, delivering on the promise of ending welfare as we knew it. The system, he said, hurt those it was meant to help. A bipartisan consensus had emerged at that time that federal welfare was not providing what its architects had intended, a hand up, not merely a hand, up, hand out to those in need. Well, the 96 welfare law transformed the largest federal cash assistance program, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and it became the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, TANF. To overcome long-term poverty and dependence, the law required states to engage half of their work-capable recipients in finding work or training for work. Well, the results were dramatic. Years of negative outcomes for those in the program reversed. TANF enrollment fell by half as more recipients were able to support themselves outside the cash payment system. Employment among single mothers increased. Child poverty fell to an historic low. Welfare reform worked because it recognized that decades of unconditional cash grants had poorly served those in need. By the 1990s, researchers had identified worklessness and unwed childbearing as the key challenges facing those in long-term poverty. The bottom line was this, human need was much more than merely material. Flourishing is rooted in the reality that we are made for purposeful activity and made to thrive in relationships. And yet, too many assumed that the 1996 legislation actually had ended welfare as we knew it, and that policymakers' work was therefore done. In reality, TANF is only one of several dozen federal means-tested programs providing cash, food, housing, medical assistance, and social services to poor and low-income Americans. And these programs require reform as well. Clearly, much more about the welfare system needs changing than could be accomplished in the TANF reform. 
But now, even what it did achieve is at risk. Despite having voted for the 1996 uh, welfare legislation as a senator, President Biden has marked its 25th anniversary by introducing policies that undermine work-based welfare. The 96 TANF reform was only the beginning of a policy transformation that is needed to help more Americans overcome poverty and long-term dependence. Now a generation has passed since that breakthrough reform. Since then, policymakers have treated it too much as a moment when we needed to build a movement of work-based welfare. Too many believed that the slogan that we ended welfare as we knew it was actually literal when the work of welfare reform had only just begun. So our challenge today, and what our program will focus on here, is to build momentum for a generation of reform to come. We will focus first in our first panel on the leadership we need for the next generation of reform. And on this panel, we'll be talking to three leaders who participated in different ways in helping to bring about the reforms of 1996 and then to implement it. They've also had the opportunity to watch in policy and in society the changes that have come in the decades since that reform. And they have important perspectives on what kind of leadership we will need to advance reform for the next generation. So let me introduce uh, our three panelists, and I then will uh, lead a conversation with them, and we will open it up to you and our listeners online as well for questions after our discussion. Eloise Anderson has served as secretary and director of two state welfare agencies, two state social service departments uh, in the state of Wisconsin and in the state of California, and she currently serves as chair of the Secretary's Innovation Group. Jason Turner was commissioner of New York City's welfare and Medicaid programs, along with some other programs. And he also worked on welfare reform in the state of Wisconsin and uh, served as director of the um, uh, at AFDC at the Health and Human Services Department here in Washington. And he is currently executive director of the Secretary's Innovation Group. Matt Weidinger is Rose Scholar in Poverty Studies at, at the American Enterprise Institute. He previously served as the Deputy Staff Director of the House Committee on Ways and Means and as, a long, as the longtime Staff Director of its Subcommittee Overseeing Safety Net Programs. Uh, he was also a primary staff author of the 1996 Welfare Reform Law. Well, I'd, I'm going to join them here on the panel and then present the first question to Eloise. Um, Eloise, if, if you would first, um, please, a lot has changed uh, since 1996, and before we delve into the specifics of the kinds of leaders and the modes of leadership that we need, I think it's important that we get the lay of the land. Where do we stand now, and uh, in, what are the challenges that today's leaders will need to tackle if we want to help more Americans reach greater flourishing? Eloise? Uh, I think if... Um, the leaders look at with the culture, what's happening in the culture. One of the things they're going to have to look at is the two things that are, I think are going on. One, the family is deteriorating. And if our type of society is going to stay, I think the family has to be strengthened. And this is not a job that most governments do or think about or even do well, but we're going to have to figure out how to do that. The other one is, that the call I've been making forever is fathers and what we are doing to fathers and boys and families. And um, 
I, my observation over time is that men, fathers, and boys are not doing well. Now, some of this is because we spent our focus on females and mothers. And when I look at our policies, particularly the ones that are coming out of this administration, what I see is more and more movement away, pushing men out of the family, more and more supportive of single mothers, more and more not supporting the, the two-parent family. And I am very concerned about the push to not support fathers, not support single men, not support boys. And I am very concerned that one of the things that will bring in uh, a more socialist slash communist society is familiness, when, where, this, where the family looks for the state to take care of it, where the children look to the state to be their parent. And I see this more and more. I think the first place I saw this was in the school lunch program. Well, now it's not just the school lunch program, it's the school breakfast program and the school dinner program. And I ask myself all the time, wait a minute, if we're doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks for the kids, why do we have the food stamp program? So I'm, I'm conf confused, actually I'm not, but I'm confused at what we are trying to do to the family. The other thing is um, the whole notion of childcare. I'm a, I'm a very old-fashioned person. I think that we could solve a lot of these problems if we reintroduce marriage. Because when you have two parents in the household, one could actually stay home and take care of the kids, which really concerns me. The other part is on the old end of this. The caregivers, both for children and for elderly, have historically been women. They are not around to do the caregiving. They're not around on the child care end. They're not around on the elderly end. And so to me, this is an outproduct of the breaking up of the family, the being able to take care of both generations, the new one coming up and the one that's leaving. And within that whole system of family, I don't see any place for men anymore. And I'm very, very concerned about a society that it thinks that men are not any longer needed. And as I look out at, having been in the Army, when I look out at our vulnerability, which we didn't used to have because we thought, well, we got two oceans, we don't have to worry. Well, that's something we have to worry about. Where are the men who are going to come who are going to do battle? I know we don't like to think about that, but I think we have to think about all those pieces. And so the leaders that are coming at the state level, which is what I know and understand the most, I think have to think about these issues that we have told them we don't want you to touch. I don't want you to touch family. I don't want you to touch the men's issue. I don't want you to touch the women's issue. I don't want you to touch the elderly. I don't, I don't want you to be thinking about these issues. But as a society, I don't think we go forward unless we think about them. And we've got to have governors who are willing to put their hand on these rails and maybe execute themselves. But I think... I think these are the important issues. The family issues are the most important issues.
Thank you. It's really helpful to remember that we're talking about things that go much deeper than the material, and it, they're, they're holistic in individual lives, and individual lives are in the context of relationships. So this is a really great note to start on. Uh, Matt, let, let me ask you to comment on the same thing. What are the challenges leaders are going to need to face? Sure. I, I mean, I agree with always the, the cultural, the non-material side is critical, and you know we've seen significant deterioration when it comes to things like marriage rates and, and out-of-wedlock birth rates and, and so forth. The material side matters too, of course, as you stressed in your opening, Jen. Um, and I think the greatest challenge that we're facing now is this sort of growing perception that is working its way through policy and resulting in proposals on Capitol Hill that work is not necessary, that work can really be replaced by government benefits. Um, so, you know, we saw from welfare reform the expectation that individuals go to work resulted in more work, higher earnings, less poverty, less dependence. And it wasn't just in the late 1990s. That continued over time, properly understood, if you consider the safety net and the work and earnings that individuals uh, were able to attain for themselves. Before the pandemic, poverty had reached record lows. And our official statistics do a terrible job of understanding this, but it was something like 2 or 3%, right? Still too high, but uh, extraordinarily low by historical standards. So that sort of work-based system worked. And that work-based system was more than just sticks. It was carrots as well. Creation of the earned income tax credit, child tax credit, uh, expanded uh, medical coverage for people leaving welfare for work, child care, you name it. It was a system designed to support work, and it was bipartisan. What's happened in the last couple of years is that work support system has has had its foundations, I'd say, undermined, uh, especially by the left wing of the Democrat Party, which is basically the driving force behind the Biden administration and Democrats on Capitol Hill. You see this most um, starkly in what's going on with the child tax credit. So as I mentioned, a work support created in the wake of welfare reform that always said in order to receive this tax benefit payable through the IRS, a parent had to work, no longer. What's being proposed on Capitol Hill, what may be considered on the House floor today, tomorrow, who knows when they actually get to it, for the first time says that this major benefit payable through the IRS will be paid to parents who are not working. So major change and basically a reversal of the 1996 welfare reforms. Um, that literally, so while the policy that's being proposed says the bigger checks and the monthly checks now payable to one in three households in America um, are only to be extended for one year, the longer, more enduring policy, literally the only permanent policy in this package, says we are going to continue paying whatever the amount is that's payable through this program, including to non-workers, forever. So you can tell a lot by policy priorities that policymakers have on Capitol Hill by what they always want to do, as opposed to what they want to do for a little period of time, and then we'll see what happens after that. And literally, that is the, the primary policy goal, is to undermine welfare reform and say that in the future, we, the government will resume, in effect, paying benefit checks to non-working parents. Um, so that, to me, is sort of the biggest obstacle to advancement. And it's really, it undermines the thing that was the source of bipartisan agreement in the 1990s and for many years afterwards, which is really the most corrosive part about all this. Like, there's all sorts of fights about you know, everything involving uh, welfare one way or another. But for a brief moment, there was enactment of legislation signed by a Democrat president, basically drafted by Republicans on the Hill, that promoted work and said work was the best path out of poverty. That moment lasted, and here we are, and literally the underpinning of all that is being reversed. Yeah, the moment is a, is a key here. We right. have 
I looked at this too much as an event in a moment and, and lost the momentum. Um, well, Jason, let me turn the next question to you. Uh, what are the character and qualities that is that are needed in welfare leadership at the state and federal level now? Well, I think that leaders must have behind them support from society in order for them to lead and execute. They can't uh, articulate a vision without people, uh, re without it resounding with people. I think one of the things that has happened over the uh, period of time since welfare reform is a shift in the locus of agency within the discussion. So here's what I mean by that. Um, if you look back at uh, the 1990s, there was uh, no, there were, when I arrived in, in 1981 in Washington, there were no men begging for money on the streets. It wasn't considered acceptable. There were beggars, but they weren't men who could work. That was just not acceptable. And then along came a guy named Mitch Snyder in the 1980s, and he redefined the reason people were not working who were able-bodied from, uh, from lack of work and lack of uh, uh, responsibility to uh, a lack of affordable housing. And when he did that, it was a brilliant rhetorical shift that's been copied elsewhere. He shifted the locus of responsibility away from the individual to a larger impersonal economic force that was beyond anybody's control, namely the housing industry. When he did that, uh, it had a, 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 an impact on the way we think about uh, responsibility. So welfare reform indicated that people who were receiving benefits had an obligation to help support themselves. And now you find that there's been a retreat from that idea. And leadership needs to be reestablished the, the notion that that individuals are responsible for themselves. So I would like to see society writ large, that is, um, take a position that individuals, uh, that they can't solve problems for individuals that aren't, aren't willing to help themselves, that ultimately individuals have agency over their own destiny and society can help they can't substitute for, for, for that. Once society begins to assert itself as an independent force for the good of all, then leaders can come along and say, let's bring, let's bring this to the next level. But I, I think society has to be able to say to individuals, we can't substitute for your own condition. You have to make efforts to do that yourself, and you're responsible for that. And at the moment, the rhetoric is society's responsible for all of the ills of people who are, um, who are not succeeding in, in, in life. So to answer your question, Jen, I think the first thing that has to, has to happen is that we leaders have to ask society to make its own demands. You can't have a tent city outside of Union Station with the police walking around and not evicting people because they are alleged, allegedly in need and, and destitute. Society has to impose its own rules. So that's what we had before. We had society imposing its own rules, which was 
work and responsibility and then the leaders came along like the governors and said ok within that context here's here's how you would operationalize it that's what tommy thompson did giuliani that's what heritage helped do with its leadership in that issue uh, years ago and that's what i think has to happen again a culture of expectation right. yeah thank you okay uh, eloise do you want to comment on the character qualities needed in leadership yeah i was thinking about that one i think they have to be able to articulate a vision and the vision has to be one that resonates with all parts of their community and along with the vision i think we need a reconnection to the constitution I don't think Americans really understand who we are. I, they don't understand why, what it means to be uh, a republic. I mean, they keep saying, well, we're a democracy. No, we're not. We're a republic. They don't understand the difference between a national government and a federal government. And I think a good, at the, at the state level, we need governors who understand these differences because they've got to be able to turn around to the federal government and say, no, we're not doing that. No, you're not intruding on my jurisdiction. And they don't do that. They got to understand that when they take, take the federal dollars, they're giving up some of the sovereignty and why that's important. And they've got to be able to articulate that both to the legislature and to the people. And so they got to continually remind the people why we are what we are, what it means to continue to be free in this way. And for some of us, I think the governors or the leaders need to talk about freedom. What does it mean to be free? Because I'm not sure we understand that or care about it. And so to me, going forward, the state and local leaders have a big job on their hand. And one is to revision for the citizen America so that we don't lose it. Mm. Thank you. Matt, anything out here? So I would, this is going to sound weird in Washington, D.C., but I would say there's sort of two sides to this. One is to understand um, what we can do to affect policy and change policies, and the other is to have a certain amount of humility, right? So what Jason was talking about, about individual responsibility, made me think of the success sequence, which is a concept in this town, maybe not a lot of people out in America know this, but it was developed by a Republican and Democrat who worked on welfare issues for a long time. And basically it says if you work full time, graduate from high school, and delay having children until after you marry, your chances of being poor are extraordinarily low. I talked before about the welfare state properly understood resulting in very low unemployment or very low poverty rates. But literally, the same thing can happen through personal agency. If somebody makes a commitment to pursue what I think is derisively called middle-class values now in America, and, and wrongly so, um, they can be the result of their being, you know, removing themselves from poverty or eliminating the possibility they might fall, fall into poverty, except for really extraordinary circumstances. So yeah, we want to orient government programs around that. But really, that, that requires understanding how government programs undermine things like the success sequence. So think about you know, the atmospherics in America today. Don't have to be able to read and write to graduate from high school. Multiple government programs uh, discouraging marriage. Programs replacing the need to work. What are those? Anti-success sequence. So in terms of how we pursue reforms of these programs, we need to really understand how individuals can pursue their own success but then also orient government programs to be reinforcing of that instead of undermining of that. 
This is really helpful, and it's intriguing to see the currents uh, across your answers here, which uh, very much bring this conversation into a general conversation about the direction and the character of our society, um, the, the formation of character in individual persons and communities. Uh, it, it's not, you're not answering first with technical issues of how do you distribute the checks. The most important things uh, by, by your answers are uh, these larger issues and even bringing citizens into this equation. This isn't something that should be uh, relegated, delegated to uh, a bureaucracy in Washington or a state government. It's something that we can all take responsibility about as, as individual citizens. Let me move now to thinking perhaps a little bit more about some of the particular uh, aspects that are needed for leaders at the state level, um, secretaries of welfare, members of Congress who are going to uh, uh, take uh, this issue of welfare reform and renew it. What are some of the things that need to be done to uh, uh, cultivate that leadership for the decades to come? I, I particularly want to ask Eloise and Jason this, because your secretary's innovation group is dedicated to this person, purpose. So what, what are some of the things that you're trying to do through that? Go first. Or you, want to, uh, you go first. Okay. Um, I've had two two things that I've tried to do with bringing people behind me is one to spend time with younger people in the system uh, and try to get them interested in staying in this particular arena uh, because unlike health, if you go down this route when you finish, there's no big dollars after this. So to, so. It's not only that you're going to be in poverty, uh, you're coming to like your clients. So th this is not a wealth-generating profession, where if you go over to the medical side, it's a wealth-generating profession. Nobody is lobbying us to go work for them afterwards. So, so one thing is to try to keep people in the field who are smart and good and interested and keep their passion, because this is a jobs that will just drain you. The other one in SIG is to let people get to know people of like mind. A lot of times when I worked, I felt alone. I mean, there was just nobody around that was thinking like me, so I felt like I was out, out, out in the wilderness, trying to make sure that people who come into these secretary positions or high-level executive positions in human services don't feel alone, and they don't feel that their ideas are crazy. So those are my two big ones. Is the people who are right up under me, develop them and keep them intact, and then make sure that the secretaries we have don't feel alone. That's great. Yes, Eloise, I couldn't agree more. And uh, when you come into a high-level position in state government uh, with billions of dollars of, of assets to distribute, to help distribute, um, it's difficult to know. It's like Dorothy with the the red slipper. She could always go home, but she didn't know how to use the slippers. So it's kind of like that. So what SIG tries to do is we have a body <coughs> of experience from our, our own, from, from our own members and from uh, presenters that we bring in, like, like Matt and like Robert Rector, that can help us think this thing through. And then we, we utilize our body of knowledge to then allow the secretaries to absorb some of that and bring it back to their own states so they can take ideas 
and place them in a cassette and press play rather than having to start learning the system from the get-go. Matt, do you want to comment on this from a member of Congress kind of so, yeah, or staff? Yeah. Um, well, members of Congress are often called leaders, um, but in many respects, they are really followers. They are followers of trends and information, and basically our audience today is state welfare secretaries of the opinions of folks like uh, folks in our audience who actually are doing this stuff, right? Like Bill Clinton was a smart guy. He didn't come up with, you know, end welfare as we know it uh, on his own. He rec he was smart enough to recognize that there was a trend. Programs were causing unintended bad consequences, maybe sometimes intended bad consequences, but bad consequences nonetheless. And he was smart enough to act on that. But others around him, cultural leaders, church leaders, uh, you know, program experts, and that were helping him understand those things. So I would suggest that there's more than just individual agency on the part of American people uh, at work. When it comes to welfare reform, there's a lot of agency for scholars, academics, uh, people who recognize trends and can sort of have those ideas percolate up the system that contribute to the broader exercise of all this. Thank you. Um, so, so let me, this is a final question before we open it up and get some questions uh, either from our uh, audience here or online. Um, who is a leader? And, and I'm, I'm particularly circling back to some of the comments that have been made about the importance of uh, culture and society. How should the officials who are working in uh, positions of authority, whether at the federal level or the state level, be thinking about their interaction and cultivation of leadership networks outside of government? Any of you want to comment on that? Well, I, I guess I'll have to go to faith-based. Yeah. Um, we, we need to support our religious foundation, which I think is really important. And I think we're losing it. And so some of the best leaders in terms of where we want to go with things are in the churches or in synagogues, probably even in mosques. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to bring them in. And we need to hear what they've got to say, not just us telling them. But we need to hear what they've got to say, because they're on the ground. They really see this. And then we have a variety of other places where leaders are. I always, when I look at the black community, I always say barbershops and beauty shops have some of our best leaders because those aren't, those aren't the normal structures we would go to. But we need to figure out what are the places where people go to get advice. Where are, who do the people on the street look at as their leaders and not who the media brings to us as our leaders because those are usually not people that are leaders. So. That's how I think we ought to go at it. I want to give you an example. Tommy, when he was thinking about doing welfare reform, Governor went Thompson. To, Governor Thompson, he went into the black community. I mean, in it, not off to the side, not talking from a distance, went into the community, met with people on the street, had a community meeting where people came. And one of the things that he we did was to make sure that when people showed up, they had to have lived in a certain zip code. All the all the elected officials couldn't come because they didn't live in a zip code with these people. So he got to really talk to the people about their issues. And what he found in that were people that he could pull out to become leaders for him to hear. So I think that's important. Real conversation and real yeah, trust right. building. That's great. Other things? I, I would say we all are, right? So think about Loudoun County public school parents and what they have just achieved. They 
expressed opposition to the way they were being treated by the public school administrators and in a way changed America, right? Like this became the metaphor for the country um, of pushing back against heavy-handed government imposition of values that people fundamentally disagreed with. Um, that's how change really happens. Uh, you know, that's, if you read a little bit about revolution in history, that's where change really happens. It's not from leaders imposing you know, their will from the top. It's because things percolate from the bottom and things become unsustainable. So I, I, I think we constantly are reminded and have recently been reminded of the value of individuals and individuals asserting their rights and pursuing what they think is uh, best for them. Okay. All right. We'd like to open it for questions now. Um, we can take questions from our online listeners. Uh, and Jared, I'll just ask you to uh, raise your hand if you've got anything. Any questions? Let me make one observation while you're raising your hand and the microphone is getting to you. Um, it is interesting. We have, I appreciate that you underscored that this needs, we need people who are going to commit a lifetime of work to these issues. Uh, these are reforms that do not get done overnight. Um, they don't get done in one election cycle. Uh, I framed this at the beginning as the next generation, and it needs to be a continuous generation of reform. And therefore, uh, we need those who will uh, look towards working in these fields in the policy world, uh, in elected capacities, staffing the hill and so on and are willing to get to know the minutia this you know reading welfare code <laughs> is not the most thrilling thing in the world to do but all of you have done it and mastered it because you're committed to something beyond that beyond the bureaucratic detail you are committed to uh, the lives that are being disserved and can be better served by the kinds of reforms we're talking about what, what do you think let me ask this question um, what do you think will, how, when you see people coming and, and being animated about uh, following in the footsteps of leaders like you, what is it, what can we do to help more people see this as a lifetime calling, really? Some of it is people need to recognize um, the good that can be done by benefit programs and sort of motivating individual agency and all that, but also the damage, right? And I think we're witnessing to a, a significant degree some of the damage that can be achieved by programs. And, you know, obviously sometimes negative things motivate people more than positive things. Um, but the sort of idea that work is no longer necessary, that benefit programs are being converted into subsidies for non-work for um, really in, in significant ways for the first time in a, in a generation is a strong motivator and the kind of thing that causes people to become interested in these issues and want to work on these issues. So some of that is just looking around and seeing the bad stuff that's going on that you might want to commit a career or you know, a decade or part of your life to reversing, which is really worthwhile stuff, yeah. but complicated and Difficult. We just, uh, at, oh, uh, among the secretaries, we just had a conversation based on research about some of the things that uh, enforced idleness uh, causes, personal things, not necessarily uh, loss of income. But it includes atrophying from the skills that you need to be able to uh, effectively work in an environment, it increased family stress, um, substance abuse increase, uh, physical health decline. These are all things that come about with a lack of purpose that is endemic to being uh, 
receiving benefits without having to go to work. So there's a lot of problems that accrue to the individual. So what we have to think about is, if you think about the things that concern Americans now in general, the general public, uh, the, the dissolution of the family that Eloise mentioned, America's retreat from world leadership, l the loss of identity that we have as Americans and substituting in many instances for uh, tribalism and identity politics. Uh, all of these things require a right of center solution. None of the solutions being proposed by the left about these issues are effective. Their concerns have to do with personal freedom from social restraints, sexual orientation, drugs, um, and so substituting a place-based uh, community to an identity-based community, sometimes online. None of those are going to have an impact on the underlying problems that animate Americans' anxiety. Well, I think if you want people to stay in the field, you have to, they have to see you as a happy warrior. You can't be always hanging your head, can't be always in a bad mood, so you got to be a happy warrior. The other thing is that you got, you, you got to, you probably have to want to be here for a long time. You got to grow old in these jobs uh, and be happy about it. And my view of how I did it was I retired four times. So I went out, took a breather, came back. Um, so I think the longevity is important. And people have to see that this is, I don't want to use, but I have to use the word fun. Because you're making a difference. Yeah. And, and, and I want to use the Moses story. You know, Moses never got to see the promised land. You might never see what your work is doing. But you are making a difference. And so you got to be happy, happy warrior about this. And if you're always rocking around your office with your mouth hanging down and mean and evil, nobody wants to follow that. I don't want to do that. You know, so try to be happy. Because if you're happy, then people say, gee, maybe I want to do that. Because one, we don't make a lot of money compared to our counterparts with the same size agency. So why are you doing this? Well, because I think I'm doing good and I'm happy about doing it. And I think that's what brings people in. And when you stop being happy, everybody just says, I don't want to do that job. They're here. Well, you know, Eloise, you have so well summed up what we have tried to do with this forum, which is to bring together those who are committed for the long haul to making a difference in the lives of those in need. And we want to do that with the best hopes uh, for their future and for our country's future, uh, to do that in a way that supports one another. Uh, we, we, have, we have an opportunity to help those who are serving on the front lines in these ways, and we hope that uh, the comments that you've made today will inspire a new generation of leaders who want to make a difference for those who are hurting, for those who don't have much hope for the future. So Eloise and Jason and Matt, I thank you for being happy warriors and for sharing uh, these insights about the leadership we need. Please join me in thanking our panel here. Well, we are going to transition uh, with a video to our second panel, and this is going to be focusing on welfare reform opportunities. 
the video is going to be an interview uh, by my colleague Genevieve Wood at the Heritage Foundation interviewing Robert Rector. Uh, Robert is a senior fellow here at the Heritage Foundation in Domestic Policy Studies. And as many of you know, he was a chief architect of the 96 welfare reform. And this short video is Robert commenting on uh, the state of debate right now over welfare proposals on Capitol Hill. Please join me in watching uh, this short video as our second panel comes to the stage. Well, we are joined now by Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and one of the country's most foremost scholars uh, when it comes to poverty and welfare reform programs. Robert, thank you for being here. Uh, before we get into all this legislation about Build Back Better and where they want to go, lay the groundwork for us, if you will, on what we're spending today. Before we spend anything else, where are we today with welfare spending? Well, the base year 2018, before the COVID pandemic, we spent about $1.2 trillion on means-tested assistance. That's cash, food, housing, medical care, uh, social services for poor and low-income people. It doesn't include Social Security or Medicare. It's about 5% of GDP. About half of that money goes to families with kids. So that's where we are today. Uh, yeah. That, which is a lot of money right now, mm -hmm. uh, but the Build Back Better, Better legislation, they want to add a lot to that. What kind of numbers are we talking about here in dollars? Well, if you look at, for example, the assistance that we provide to families that the government defines as poor families with kids, they receive about $20,000 in uh, cash, food and housing benefits. They receive about another about $19,000 in medical care, about $5,000 in social services. And then they also get about $22,000 a year in, in education. That's not means tested, but the taxpayer pays for it. So that's a total of about $65,000 a year. And they also have earnings. They have about $18,000, $19,000 in earnings. So the, the, you go from about 65,000 to around $83,000 a year in uh, in uh, total resources that these families have. Uh, and you could ask the question, how does the government define a family with $83,000 in resources as poor? And the answer is fairly simple. It just doesn't count anything. Uh, it undercounts earnings by about a third. Uh, out of the total welfare spending, it misses about 95% out of it. So that of that 65,000 in government assistance, government counts about 3,000 of that as uh, income for purposes of measuring poverty. And guess what? You have a lot of poverty when you do that, since these families are overwhelmingly de dependent upon the generous support that the taxpayer gives. Now, because you don't count the welfare state, it's easy for the left to project that we have a meager welfare state and we need to enlarge it a whole bunch. You know, And so that's what Biden is doing. He's going to pile in uh, uh, if you fully funded this for 10 years, about another two and a half trillion dollars, he increases the budget of the Department of Housing, Urban and Development by 50 percent, just like that bang, a 50 percent increase. And uh, the average family here is going to get about 11 to 12 thousand dollars, the average poor family, in addition to the 65 thousand they already have. And when you add that to their earnings, uh, they're going to go up to around $93,000 in combined resources. Now, the interesting trick is that with this eleven dollars or $12,000 in additional spending, most of which is cash and food and housing, 
Not one penny of that is counted as income for purposes of measuring poverty. Not one dime and all of that. Uh, just as we really have never spent, counted any of this. Since the beginning of the war on poverty, we have spent $34 trillion on means-tested assistance for poor and low-income people since Lyndon Johnson. Of that, the government counted about $2.5 trillion as income for purposes of measuring poverty. By their own measurements and counts, effectively, the entire, almost the entire war on poverty was off budget, not counted. It never even happened. And, the, and it enables them to come back year after year after year by not counting what's already out there as, uh, as a, uh, and demand more spending. Well, and Robert, so it, clearly this is historic in terms of the number of new dollars they, they want to add. But as you well know, there's more here than just the dollars they want to add. There's mm -hmm. also human cost of those who get trapped in the welfare system. Speak to that issue and how, how the new dollars uh, and the new programs that the Biden administration wants to put in here, how does that affect the individual and the family in the welfare system? Well, one of the key things they do is they overturn welfare reform from the Clinton era. Clinton era, we got rid of a program called Aid to Families with Dependent Children, which was cash to single moms who didn't work. Clinton was elected on the promise that he would get rid of that. And we established work requirements for cash welfare programs. Either you had to find a job or if you couldn't find one, you had to undertake some activities to move towards self-support. That's been very effective with a realistic measure of poverty and, and dropping the poverty rate of children very dramatically. And dependence went way down. Um, Clinton was elected on ending welfare as we know it. Biden is now trying to restore welfare as we knew it. Uh, he's going back and resurrecting the principle of paying families not to work. That's a disaster because each child needs to grow up with the example of at least one working adult in the household. When you remove pe people from work, you undermine their, their, sen their sense of self-respect, their sense of, of effectiveness in the world and you moved them to, into the social margins, which is why we got rid of aid to families with dependent children. This is a resurrection of that old program really under a new name. The bill also substantially increases the marriage penalties uh, in the welfare system and the, ripping the fathers out of the home is one of the worst things that we've done in poor income communities, but they're kind of doubling down on that. Robert, thank you very much for this analysis. I know you have a new re uh, Heritage Research paper out that goes through all this line by line. Uh, so thank you for this and thank you for being with us. Thank you. Well, clearly, if we were going to win the war on poverty through spending, we would have done it a long time ago. And the challenges run much more deep. On this panel, we're going to talk about a roadmap to better reforms, better solutions for those in need. And we have uh, policy perspectives uh, from uh, Think Tank, from Capitol Hill, and from the states. And so I'd like to introduce our three panelists and look forward to a good conversation with them. Leslie Ford is visiting fellow in domestic policy studies here at the Heritage Foundation. She previously worked at the White House and uh, for Senator Lee on Capitol Hill working on welfare policy. 
Dan Ziegler is Executive Director of the Republican Study Committee. He previously was the Managing Director of Government Relations for Heritage Action and has also served at the Department of, Interior, of the Interior in the past. Eric Cockling comes to us from Georgia Center for Opportunity, where he's the Chief Program Officer and General Counsel. And in addition to his policy work, Eric is engaged in community initiatives. Uh, he's a founding board member of uh, the, the Other Side Academy, which is based in Atlanta, a residential vocational alternative sentencing program. And he's on the board of Georgia Cyber Academy, a charter school serving students across the state. Uh, so I look forward to this conversation about our uh, roadmap to better solutions. Let me begin, Leslie, with you. Uh, after a generation of welfare reform, what are the challenges and what, what are the things that are being overlooked in our current policy proposals? Uh, what kind of policy are we going to need to get back on track for the kinds of uh, breakthroughs that we saw 25 years ago? Mm -hmm. I think the last panel covered really well why the 96 reform worked so well. And I think they touched especially on where it was percolating up. The thing to understand is AFDC was a 60-year-old program. So people began to see the effects of that program on the low-income community in their communities. And then it percolated up to the governor level, and then it percolated up to Bill Clinton's level, and then Joe Biden was on the Senate floor saying that work has to be the basis of our welfare system. I think that's going to happen again, and let me tell you why. We're, the pandemic, unfortunately, has brought it back into our communities. I mean, I've only been in welfare policy for 10 years, but I've never seen it, its effects in the broader community like today. So before the pandemic happened, our work participation rate was 63%, now it's 61%. That means three to four million people are completely out of the workforce. And if you've gone down into your downtown, if you've talked to any employer in your state, every single person is asking the same question. Where are the workers? I, you've definitely seen this. And the thing is, they're in your communities, they're just on the sidelines more and more because that's where the pandemic has pushed them to because the pandemic programs have, again, pushed out work and pushed out marriage. So we're seeing, just since the pandemic began, 5 million more people on SNAP. And just since the pandemic began, 12 million more people on Medicaid. Let me tell you, if you're on SNAP and you're on Medicaid and you qualify for those programs, you're not working much. So. We have, unfortunately, and maybe in the sense now because we're 25 years away from the 96 reform and we've forgotten so many of those lessons, we have an opportunity to look at those people who are on the sidelines and say, let's, let's make sure we're bringing them back into an economic recovery. We need to. We can't recover without them. And unfortunately, in welfare policy, so often it's able, we're able to silo them off. Oh. 10% of America has to be dependent on these welfare programs just to get by. Okay, well, we're, we're going to push that over here. That's not the case right now, and it shouldn't be. We have to put work, we have to put marriage, we have to put education and training back at the center of our state policies. Every governor in America has to do this or they're not going to re recover economically. And so what, and they have the tools right now to do it. We don't have to wait for the federal government to figure out that there's natural dignity in work. That was, there was a New York Times column that said there is no natural dignity in work. We don't have to wait for people here to figure that out. State policy leaders, whether it's legislators, whether it's governors, whether it's our, our state uh, secretaries, they have the tools in SNAP, in Medicaid, to be able to focus on work. And some of those solutions are there's a general work requirement. You can ask someone to come in for seven hours of training a week. 
You can ask someone to look for a job and find a job for 20 hours a week. You can say no to waivers for able-bodied adults without dependents. Um, you can focus on eligibility determinations in Medicaid. You can ask someone to come in once a year just saying, hey, do you still qualify for this program? What are you doing? You can focus on education and training. Uh, I, GAO has a study that says the federal government has 43 education and training programs, and we don't know whether any of them work. About $19 million a year. Most of those programs are run and operated at a state level. So you can do an audit of how many programs are in my state. Are they working? And if you want them to work better, tell them you're, tell the people who are running those programs you're only going to pay them if they actually get someone a job and they retain that job for a while. So we have the practical tools and we have an opportunity because everyone is seeing the effect in their communities. Thank you. That's great contextualizing it. Um, Dan, I would like to ask you, because you're working with a set of members who are trying to think about how to restore greater flourishing, and they have some ideas that contrast <laughs> with the prevailing ideas in this town right now. So could you describe a little bit about what's on the mind of these members? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me start, I guess, with the, with the contrast, or at least what I believe the contrast is. Um, we're potentially hours, maybe just a couple of days from the House passing a massive bill that you just heard uh, Robert describe um, that would do uh, remarkable damage uh, on top of the damage that's already been done by past legislative efforts in this space. Um, but I think the, the values that I, the contrast of values I think are, are telling. Um, so I, I, I wrote down what I, what I think are those values. Uh, or I guess lack of values. Uh, so from uh, President Biden and the Democrats, I see kind of a one-size-fits-all prescription when it comes to comes to policy, um, an undermining of religious liberty and faith-based institutions, um, uh, government not parents or individuals in control, um, work not required or encouraged, in fact discouraged, uh, discourage of marriage and family formation. Uh, encouragement of government dependency and the the value of free stuff, um, and I think in in contrast to that the values that I think in, as we're looking at policy that we're looking are, are really you know directly opposite of that. I think in general we're looking from a about welfare policy as more than just welfare policy. That it's um, we need to be looking at it from every angle. One of the things that we've been trying to do the last few years is to try to move away from this attempt to kind of silo issues and look at how they all impact each other and intertwine. Um, and so that's one of the things that we spend a lot of time on, both uh, focusing on social and economic pieces and how they, how they work together and are important together. And then more generally, so in contrast to the uh, values that I just described on uh, the Democrat side, but on our side, flexibility, flexibility and how benefits are, are given and used uh, uh, by the individuals using them, parents and individuals, not government in control, uh, encouragement of marriage and family formation, uh, uh, empowering parents with more choice and control of K-12, um, the need to overhaul our higher ed system, which is producing, uh, you know, I think a drag on family formation that we don't often talk about. Certainly. The, on our side, the need for a pro-life focus, but you know, moving beyond just the normal kind of things that we think about in pro-life, but uh, looking at adoption and uh, foster uh, foster care and the kind of things that um, would support uh, 
you know, people that are thinking about the hard choices that, you know, often lead to abortion. And then, you know, the ideas of free opportunity as opposed to free stuff and self-sufficiency. Um, so I think those are the values that we are spending a lot of time thinking about in terms of what kind of policy that we would like to, to move. Um, we've been working for a handful of months behind the scenes on a what we're calling a family principles uh, policy guide. Um, and we hope to release uh, from the Republican Study Committee, hopefully, um, you know, before the end of the year. I think that we'll be talking with our members about this uh, in the next couple days uh, a bit as well to get their buy-in. But the, the general idea is kind of putting all of these policies that help shape um, the issues that we're, that our countries are dealing with and individuals are dealing with and no longer looking at them in the sphere of, okay, just welfare here or just education here or just economics or just so, I mean, social issues. Um, how do they all work together and how do we um, advance them all for uh, a more vibrant family? Because, you know, really, uh, if we have a weak, if we have weak families in this country, I think we're going to have a weak country. Um, and uh, Republicans, I think there's a growing recognition that we need to spend more time and taking more ownership of this policy area in order, um, you know, to be successful. Certainly, what happened in Virginia and Loudoun County was a, you know, hopefully a wake-up call for a number of our members to to be really leaning in here, and um, we're gonna we're gonna be helping to supply hopefully the direction. Dan, thank you for that integrated perspective. And this is how these issues naturally occur in homes all across America. And that focus is really appreciated on Capitol Hill. Eric, turning to the states now, your organization, Georgia Center for Opportunity, has a long track record of uh, working in communities, working on all these issues. I wonder if you could just bring that perspective um, of, of what can be done right now at the state level. Yeah, absolutely. First thing, thanks for the invitation to speak. Absolutely. And I love, love the... Um, things you guys have, have shared so far. The first thing I'll say is uh, Matt mentioned the success sequence. Well, our entire organization is sort of structured around that, um, focused on education, family, and employment. And working at the local level, we feel acutely what happens at the federal level on welfare. Um, I'll talk about a couple of the programs that we do um, and, and a policy reform that we're working on, but it's... Uh, sort of trying to backfill for the entropy or the the, at, the atrophy, really, excuse me, of what's happened because of welfare in the country. Uh, you know, we started out working on relationship issues in the inner city. Uh, what we found was that basically there were new marriages to save. Uh, a lot of the sort of the background that you would need to form and sustain healthy families just did not exist there. Uh, and it's a, it's a history of uh, what welfare has done, uh, in essence, among other things in the culture. Uh, also, there, is, there has been a lack of um, communities now understanding that work is so central to what they do in terms of poverty relief. So one of the things that we have done is uh, an initiative called Better Work, where we actually are working in the communities around us. Um, one of the second largest counties in the state, basically working with nonprofits who do the service delivery. Um, they're delivering food services, housing, and things like that. But they would love to be able to do workforce development. So that's one thing that we bring to the table. Uh, we've been recruiting both businesses and nonprofits to come and help uh, 
with getting these folks back to work on the employment side. We're recruiting businesses that have essentially guaranteed to give jobs and interviews to the people that we bring to them, which is a wonderful thing. One of the great frustrations that people face on the ground is not having employers call them back when they apply, and that's, uh, that's worked well. We've also uh, been recruiting mentors to work with the job seekers. Uh, one of the things that we see in dealing with poverty is that there's a, a poverty of relationships. I know this has come up a couple of times. But the folks that we're talking to, they do not have good support structures. Um, that, and what they need is really those, those connections again. So through our work initiative, that's what we're looking to do, either through mentors, through the jobs themselves, through the employers, rebuild that social capital um, that the folks are missing so that they can maintain their jobs and, and go on from there to a flourishing life, uh, not just work to subsist. Um, another area is on healthy families. I mentioned our work in the inner city on uh, marriage issues. Well, really what we've had to do is sort of backtrack and back up. Uh, it's not about marriage anymore. It's about whether you can form and sustain healthy relationships with anyone. Uh, that is drastically missing in a lot of places. So we do healthy, healthy relationships, and that's really how we talk about our work. We have a bunch of different curriculums that we go out and deliver, both in public settings, public schools. Um, we actually have partnerships with public schools, which might surprise people here that you can actually do that today. Work in churches. We work in nonprofits that are basically relief organizations for, you know, for one group or another, whether it's uh, formerly incarcerated women or men who have recently come out and want to reconnect with their, their children. So we deliver those through a train-the-trainer model. Um, and you know we're seeing great, great results coming from that program itself. But it's basically getting back to first principles, helping people relearn or learn for the first time what it is to, to have and form healthy relationships. So that's where we are right now as a culture. Um, I don't know that we appreciate that. Uh, we can't stand on the street corner and preach marriage and think that we're going to have a lot of takers. But they don't know how to get there in many cases. So we're having to back up and, and do the sort of the gritty work. The last thing I'll mention uh, is our work on the issue of welfare. Again, it's been brought up many times. We know the barriers that it presents to both work. Uh, it also presents a massive barrier to family formation through the marriage penalty. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was to model it, to be able to see, just for the state of Georgia, how drastic an issue it, it is, it truly is. So Eric Randolph, the creator of our, um, our benefits cliff model, put together a model that basically gets down to the county level, modeling about 16 of the largest programs um, that we have at the federal level. That's about 90% of all the spending that happens on welfare. And you can see how drastic the welfare cliffs are. You can also see in a separate model how drastic the, the marriage penalties are. And it's become a very good vehicle for, for advocating for reform. Uh, it has also become a great tool, we think, for both nonprofits and for businesses who want to do something for the people they're serving now to help them navigate around cliffs and plan for the future. And so that's kind of the next iteration of, of what we're doing with the cliffs model. Thank you, Eric. Let me ask you just a follow-up to comment quickly on the the regional model that you've pioneered, which is a kind of interesting thing that I think uh, more states might want to think about. 
Yeah, so uh, we have a partnership called the Alliance for Opportunity with both the uh, Pelican Institute in Louisiana and the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And really, we came together because of a shared interest in addressing poverty. I mean, that's truly what brought us together. Also, we just happen to like each other a whole lot, which is great uh, when you're working together this closely. The other, there, there are other issues that you can imagine. But we're all from the South, uh, a region of the country that is always in poverty and it's consistent, right, uh, for lots of reasons. And we all want to address it. We also agree that the success sequence is the key. Um, it's not cool to talk about marriage and family, it seems like, in a lot of places today, but we, we truly believe that there are issues there that have to be resolved if we're going to turn things around. So, you know, our, our policy roadmap that's coming together now has 30-plus different policy measures, Eric, if I'm remembering that right, that will address a lot of these issues. Some of them you will recognize, uh, criminal justice reform, education reform and choice, occupational licensing reform, welfare reform, obviously, but there are other things that we're going to pursue together as well. We each have our own strengths as an organization because of our history, so that's very helpful. We lean on each other for those strengths. Um, also, there is a need for states to show what can be done at the state level, and we, we feel like the three states together, and hopefully others will join us along the way, in the South especially, uh, we'll be able to have some wins that translate into federal reforms, much like TANF in the 90s. Well, this is exciting, and I think uh, delivering on what Eloise was talking about, uh, finding support and acting in solidarity and uh, tackling some of the challenges that come up regionally in a, in a locality. Well, let's turn back to the federal level. And Leslie and Dan, I'd like to ask you to elaborate on some of the things you've already laid out and some of the maybe the more particular reforms that ought to be pursued in a new generation of welfare reform. Well, I'll, I'll start with the states and tap into what's already happened. So we're all talking. We know work, marriage, maybe just healthy relationships, if we can't even get to marriage, are the keys to breaking out of poverty. You literally can't break out of poverty if you don't have a job. You'll never earn enough to be get over that threshold. Um, so how do we get back to basics on work? And it really can start in a state level now. Um, we've encountered a massive recession just 10 years ago in the 2009 to 2010 Great Recession. And when that happened, the only real strong work requirement in SNAP, the mandatory one, is for able-bodied adults without dependents. Um, but when the Great Recession happened, the Obama administration said, okay, we're waiving it basically for all the states. And the first state that reinstated the just the work requirement for able-bodied adults without dependents was Maine. They had massive industries that could not find workers, like their blueberry industry. And they started really basic, hey, uh, you know, there's a 20-hour work requirement. And if you can't even make that, come in for seven hours a week of volunteering. Just whatever you can do, just get in the door. We need you to just show up, um, do your part of receiving your SNAP benefits. And they saw within three months that about 80% of those able-bodied adults who were receiving the benefit weren't receiving the benefit anymore. And I think the important thing to hear is that they didn't just drop off the map and start relying on something else. They saw within a year that their incomes rose 114%. So we've seen the roadmap on work requirements, even for people who don't have any dependents in the home. And we can start pursuing that there. In the pandemic, we also, I was, in, I was in the administration at the time, we said, okay, if the economy shut down, if you literally can't leave your house, then obviously we're going to waive the work requirements. Now it's time for states to start going back to those and reinstating those. 
Um, another thing that states can do with their employment and training programs, I briefly touched on it earlier, but paying for outcomes has been done before in New York. Jason Turner led the way um, back in the day, and he looked at all of the New York City, uh, the, the contracts where they said, you know, if you had 20 contractors who said they would help find someone go through employment and training, they weren't actually paid on whether they achieved that person finding a job. And so New York City changed that. They said, we're only, we're going to pay you once someone finds a job. And then when Mayor Bloomberg came around, he said, I'm going to pay you for how long someone, I'm going to give you more money for how long someone is able to retain that job. The thing is, when we're talking about employment and training programs here at the federal level, we definitely don't know what works best. And if it works best in New York or Oklahoma or Hawaii, we don't know if we can duplicate it. It's the relationships that we've talked about here. They're so incredibly personal. It may be just this one mentor is really good or this one employer is fantastic at training. Why don't we just pay for outcomes? It worked in New York City. The first time they started paying for outcomes, they saw it increase by 100%. When they started paying for job retention, they saw job retention increase by 198%. It, it can work in your states too. Do an audit, switch to outcomes. So that's what we can do on the work side. I'll briefly touch on what we can do on the marriage side. One of the purposes of TANF in the 96 reform was to actually encourage marriage and to make stronger marriages. And some states took on that initiative. Utah, Oklahoma are some of the cases where once you walked in to get a marriage license, here's some information on a healthy marriage. What we know, what we really know is it has to start a lot early. We've talked about the success sequence again and again and again. But if you did a survey in most public schools, freshman, sophomore year, did they know about the success sequence? Do they know that they need to graduate high school and find a job and get married before having kids? And the answer is no. So if we're going to use TANF dollars anywhere, use TANF dollars to start advertising to the kids who are at most risk of intergenerational poverty before they make, get off the path that could lead them to the success sequence. So start advertising there. Just make sure they know about it. Even if they choose otherwise, they should know the path that could lead them to success. Those are some practical ways yeah, to start. Thank you. Very forward. concrete. That's helpful. Dan? Yeah, I'll add a, a couple other things. We've talked about uh, some of the job training programs. There's 11 billion of them. I think the biggest one is uh, we owe, uh, I think it's a several billion dollar program, primarily run by the states. Uh, last year, or in the last couple of years, you know, I started thinking about occupational licensing and job training, right? So we have artificial barriers put up by the, the states to basically prevent people from getting jobs. And then we have state-based, uh, federally funded uh, uh, job training programs that are supposed to help people get jobs. Uh, seems to be a, a, a disconnect here. And, um, you know, we're sending, if we're going to, the federal government's going to send dollars, we should be thinking through what kind of, you know, what kind of things that we should be attaching to make sure we get better outcomes. So, you know, that's a, that's a small example of the, you know, kinds of things that we're looking for. Like, how can we even do small things in a, you know, relatively small in the grand scheme of things federal government program, um, that you know could have a better impact on encouraging work and breaking and and helping those at the state level who are trying to fight for right. you know occupational licensing reform to be able to have another carrot to be able to bring to the equation. I'd love to be able to add a condition, uh, a funding condition on WIOA uh, funding that you know if you're if you're doing better on the occupational licensing front, you get more dollars, and if you're really really bad, you get less. Um, so I don't you know we're not there yet, but those are the kinds of things I you know I think I'd like to spend more time on and, and things that RSC and our staff think about a lot is how to 
look at these problems a little bit differently than maybe we have before. Um, you know, there's some practical things that we've worked on this Congress to, to try to change the equation. Like on the child care front, um, we had um, three uh, female new freshman uh, members uh, introduce a, a package of bills that would, you know, make some small changes in the on the child care front, but I think would be helpful. So um, the Child Care Choices Act, so, you know, allow getting those dollars to the parents, basically, to be able to have a have a, more choice into whether they're going to do a home home base care or center care. Looking at the funding formulas uh, at the state levels, and uh, uh, that oftentimes prioritize uh, uh, centers as opposed to other options. Um, you know, so small things like that. Uh, you know, a you know even a study uh, to look at what kind of um, state-based or local restrictions on uh, child care that might and how they might be impacting costs. So like here in DC, the stupid requirement that you have to have a college degree to be a child care provider. Well, obviously that's going to increase costs dramatically. And surprise, surprise, in the Democrat reconciliation bill, they're trying to push that basically everywhere. Um, it's going to dramatically increase cost and, and, and ultimately uh, cut choices for parents. Protecting faith-based uh, providers. Uh, faith-based providers in this latest Democrat package are probably, they're going to get hammered. Um, and a lot of them likely are going to shut down. Again, parents having fewer choices, uh, less options that they, you know, the goal is to funnel everything into, I guess, a, a Head Start style uh, one-size-fits-all childcare option for the entire country. Um, and I think if we've learned anything from Virginia, that's certainly not what parents want. So. Um, we need to do a better job of focusing on those issues and bringing even small, simple reforms forward that would help tell the story about, you know, the kinds of things that parents would like to see. Uh, I mentioned higher ed. Um, you know, we're, we're spitting out a lot of uh, underqualified, overeducated uh, students with uh, mountains of, uh, of debt. Um, and I think it's obvious to me that that is delaying family formation. And um, I think that's a that's a that's a problem that we need to talk about. Um, and it's also, are we producing the right kind of economic opportunity for individuals um, uh, to be able to kind of take this, uh, the right step forward? Are we setting them back, you know, ultimately years? So, um, you know, an area that we haven't probably thought a lot about from a welfare perspective, but I think is is vitally important for us to spend more time thinking about. Um, yeah, and then we're you know we're certainly doing a lot in the the K twelve space. We were already doing a lot before Virginia a couple of weeks ago, um, but our chairman released a memo literally minutes after it was clear that uh, Youngkin was going to be the winner, saying and telling our members Republicans need to be the party of parents, obviously in the education space, but we need to be doing that across the board. Um, it's an area that we have seeded far uh, far too much uh, over the years, and I think um, yeah. Uh, and so we, we obviously need to do a better job of, 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 uh, of stepping into those grounds, but uh, looking at all across the board, we need to do a better job of building healthy relationships, marriages, parents, kids, you know, all the way across the board, all of this works together. And so we're trying to figure out how to intertwine them. I'm, we even think, you know, healthcare has a role to play here. Um, you know, certainly through through Medicaid, but you know, getting more portability. Um, so we're looking at every angle possible to help tell the story and inter intertwine the pieces. 
This is wonderful. This is this panel has presented creative and bold ideas that are most certainly a generation's worth of reforms that we need to be committed to over the long haul. I especially appreciate the fact uh, that this each of these uh, panelists has represented a commitment to the hard work, beginning with rebuilding relationships and protecting the providers and the, the entrepreneurship that goes into um, making a community work. Uh, these are things that will take effort for the long haul, and we appreciate the leadership that each of you has exhibited to get these done. We, this is the end of our panel, so will you join me for, uh, in thanking our panelists here? As they are uh, leaving the stage, I want to uh, uh, cue a video that uh, is uh, celebrating the Hope Award for Effective Compassion. Each year, uh, for the last several years, we have had the opportunity to partner with World Magazine, which awards the Hope Award for Effective Compassion uh, to groups that are restoring lives and communities across the country. And this year's Hope Award winner is Safe Harbor Free Clinic in Washington State. Last week, I had the opportunity to interview Sandy Solis, the executive director of Safe Harbor. And uh, she, as we move into our final panel discussion, and I ask our panelists to join me here on stage, please listen to Sandy as she describes the healthcare challenges that are uh, very personal in nature. Uh, this will present a backdrop and the reason for the kinds of conversation that we're going to have on our last panel about expanding opportunities in healthcare and education. Sandy Solis. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, it's great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about what attracted people to highlight your work in this way. What is it that Safe Harbor does uh, that is exercising effective compassion? Uh, Safe Harbor is a free medical clinic for people who are without insurance or are underinsured. We serve the people um, not only in just our own community, but in the surrounding North Puget Sound, Washington community as well. Um, and I think that the, the thing that really separates us uh, from other nonprofit work that's, you know, uh, human services is that medical is something that should be easily obtainable, but because people either if they're unemployed or uh, have a gap in their employment, um, they or if they're self-employed, they may not have access to affordable health insurance. So that's that's where we come in. So tell us maybe, can you tell us an example of someone who you've served uh, who has faced a gap in coverage? Yeah, so we had, um, we have a patient who uh, came to us. They actually, they've been, had been coming to us and they had COVID mm -hmm. and they ended up in the hospital. And after they were, um, after they got out of the hospital, they ended up receiving a bill for like $150,000 and they were two days away from getting health care, um, health insurance. And so they have, they came to us with this bill and we're like, you know, let's see what we can help you with. And so uh, kind of working together with them and with the hospital, we were able to connect them up with their future employer um, that was going to provide their insurance and, and able to kind of work in the, within the system to be able to get that insurance to cover them a little bit early. And so it's, you know, it, this is a typical story of people who don't have um, insurance, they're in the gap somewhere between a, one job and another job, or maybe they just lost a job and their insurance has lapsed and they're, you know, they're just stuck. They don't have any other options. 
So Safe Harbor is really standing in the gap. And it, it sounds like as well, you, you don't participate in Medicaid or Medicare, but it sounds like you right. help those who do qualify navigate some of the con complexity there. Yeah. So we do not charge anybody anything to ever come to our clinic. And we also do not bill any insurance of any form, not Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, any traditional insurance, nothing. So uh, we, we ourselves don't necessarily have anybody here that's trained on how to navigate the big system of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, but we try to connect them up with some other people in our community that can help them. And sometimes even just our volunteers who work within the system of the hospital or the clinics, they have knowledge of how to help people navigate that system. And so we rely on them to help us um, help our patients. Hmm. So what, yeah. is, what would you say is the goal for Safe Harbor's service to those in need of health care? Well, our ultimate goal is to help people get insurance. You know, we want them to get onto insurance so that they can get help and they can, um, you know, have a primary care provider that will track with them and, and give them the best option to have good health care um, tracking so that they get better. You know, they can start to deal with some of their health conditions that need to be to be followed and tracked a little more closely. Um, you know, that's our main goal is to just try to to bring that um, that piece together for them. You know, and we're here because our mission statement says showing Christ's love by providing free health care to those in need. And that is our goal is we want to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this, um, serving the people that have the greatest need. Wonderful. Well, what has been most impactful for you working there? That's a really good question. And I think there's a lot of things that have impacted me. I think um, I had really no concept of what it was like to walk without insurance and to walk in a in the the fear and the shame of it that's involved in, you know, having to admit I don't have health insurance and I need I need help. Um, there's a lot of shame involved in that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of barriers in people's lives too, I think that keep them from being able to navigate the system. And it's a huge system and it's difficult. And um, I just actually recently was trying to uh, work with somebody on getting some services for them. And I was told by someone within the system that said, well, tell them to get a cup of coffee and put their patients on because there's gonna be a long wait before they'll even get their phone call answered. Mm. If you are a person who has barriers or who you've been, you've hit a lot of walls in where you're trying to get help, it doesn't take very long before you start to just give up. And I think that that's where we come in is we try to come in and be cheerleaders for people and to encourage them that, no, we'll help you. We will try to get past those barriers for you and open the door so that then you can walk through those doors. Um, and I think for me personally, that's just been an eye opening thing. I had no idea the difficulty that people were really truly facing in trying to deal with this who are going to talk about the policy realities that Sandy's pointed to, a lack of options both in healthcare and in education. I'm joined by Grace Marie Turner, who is founder and president of the Galen Institute, dedicated to educating on uh, healthcare, free market healthcare uh, solutions. And she also facilitates um, the healthcare health policy consensus group to develop, uh, promote uh, a joint effort at policy reform in the healthcare area. Dr. Lindsay Burke is director of our 
our Center for Education Policy here at Heritage, and she's the Mark A. Colocatronis Fellow in Education. So welcome, Grace Marie and Lindsay. Thank you for joining me. Um, our, we clearly have a lot of needs and a lack of options in healthcare and education, and these are critical to seeing, uh, as we've already started to on the last panel, the full range of solutions that will be necessary to help those uh, facing uh, poverty in America. So I'd like to begin, Grace Marie, with you. We've just heard Sandy Solis from the Safe Harbor Free Clinic talk about the challenges that they see in one region. Could you enlarge that picture for us and talk about the nation as a whole and how are we doing in healthcare for the poor? We could do so much better with the resources that are being allocated through, through Medicaid and CHIP and the ACA and on and on. There are now 82 million people on Medicaid across the country. And of course, every Medicaid program is different, but they share some commonalities, and that is the federal government makes it very difficult for states to be able to shape their Medicaid programs in a way that give people the dignity of coverage that would better serve their needs. If a mom needs to see a specialist for her child, she may spend an entire day on the telephone trying to find a physician who can afford to see her. I had a physician one time who said, I'd really like to see Medicaid patients. I took one that had complex lung problems. I normally would have billed about $750 for that, for that patient. When I got the payment for Medicaid, it was for six cents. I said, please tell me you saved a copy of that check. No, I cashed it. <laughs> but he, um, he says, I, we're so limited. And people on Medicaid need the dignity of private choice. And I think Dan Ziegler said it, that, um, that people, and, and Sandy did as well in this video, about how embarrassed people are either to not have health insurance or to be on public programs. There's absolutely no reason why the value of that subsidy couldn't be allocated to allow people private cho the choice of private coverage. And that also means giving you all more options to be able to provide choices for people that they like. Programs like Healthy Indiana. Anybody from Indiana? Healthy Indiana program is a great model. Happy to talk with you about that later. But there's so many other things that can be done. Section 1332, do a better job of taking care of the vulnerable, the lower premiums for everyone else. Every one of them requires you to jump through enormous hoops from the federal government. So returning power to the states, giving you the opportunity to give people more choices, and giving people the opportunity that are on these programs the opportunity to, to select private coverage of their choice. And ideally, as, as Dan Ziegler said also, allow them to have the family on the same plan rather than somebody on Medicaid, somebody else on, on CHIP, somebody else with private health insurance coverage. There's no reason they couldn't all be on the same plan, keeping themselves together as a family. Wonderful. Thank you. And I think you've outlined the key elements of the health care reform package that we need, but feel free to expand as we go forward. Lindsay, let me draw you in on education. And uh, as the COVID-19 pandemic has really exposed uh, frustration at the, what's happening in schools and, and particularly 
that's had a profound effect for those most at risk, those students most at risk. So please comment on that and, and yeah. even what it's exposed about past deficits. Well, and, and I really love the way, Grace Marie, you just described the dignity of private choice. Everything you said, we could have replaced the words healthcare for education. So right. I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it goes back, we always invoke Milton Friedman, right? But I, I think it's worth invoking that just because we publicly finance a particular service doesn't mean government has to deliver or is best positioned to deliver that service. And so, you know, as, as he had suggested all the way back in, 19, in 1955, separating the financing of education from the delivery of services, enabling parents to select learning environments that align with their values and hopes and aspirations for their children. That's how you provide that, that dignity in the education space. So well said, and Jennifer, you're exactly right. For those least uh, well advantaged, for lower income children, for children with special needs, they were the most severely impacted by COVID-induced, I would even go as far as to say teachers union induced school closures over the past now. This is for a lot of kids the third year that they are going into an environment where they face school closures even today. If you look at what was just announced, I don't know if anybody saw, but Detroit Public Schools yesterday announced that in conjunction with the teachers unions, they will now be moving to virtual schooling to remote learning for Fridays moving forward. And their reason ostensibly was because of an increase in COVID cases. I was unaware that COVID increased on Fridays, but according to the teachers unions, this is the case in Detroit. And Detroit, unfortunately, if you look at outcomes there, these are some of the uh, poorest outcomes in the country in terms of academic achievement and attainment. But you can look broader. If you look back in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, 50 million children across the country, K-12 school-age children, immediately saw their schools foreclosed to them, in-person in -person learning foreclosed to them. We know that absenteeism spiked. We know that according to a few reports now, about 3 million children were just completely unaccounted for over the past uh, year and a half or so, that they just disappeared. To put that in context, 3 million children is about the equivalent of Florida's entire K-12 population. So it's as if they just didn't, the entire state of Florida, show up to school. And of course, this means for those children, they were more likely to be kids who were at risk, students who are homeless or in the foster care system, children with special needs. And there was a report that came out from McKinsey that found that students who had been out of school who didn't have access to that in-person instruction have lost on average about five months worth of learning in math and about four months worth of learning and reading. And there are even folks who have looked at the potential economic effects of this for the individual child who had that in-person instruction foreclosed to them. And the estimates right now, at least in terms of lifetime learnings, are a loss of anywhere between $40,000 and $61,000 per student. And then I would just say, too, it's particularly frustrating because we know it didn't have to be that way. Private schools largely remained open throughout the pandemic. This was something unique, almost exclusively, to the public education sector. And so in terms of policy solutions, of course, uh, it goes back to that dignity of private choice where we should be funding families directly instead of physical school buildings to which we assign children. And again, those children who are from low-income families having the least ability to find an alternative, to find an exit option when those schools did not open for in-person instruction. So 
That is largely a state level policy solution, although there are opportunities at the federal level for those specific populations over which the federal government has jurisdiction, children from military families, children in the District of Columbia public school system, uh, Native American children on tribal lands, and a few others where the federal government could really think about taking existing dollars and making sure that those are student-centered and portable rather than institutional. So there are federal solutions there, but in the meantime, I think every state should take a cue from what West Virginia did in response to the pandemic. I don't know if anybody hears from West Virginia, but West Virginia has just uh, signed into law what will now be the most expansive education choice option in the country. It is a near universal education savings account program. So every single child in West Virginia public schools moving forward, if they want, will be able instead to receive an education savings account populated with their share of state K-12 education spending and will then be able to put it toward private school tuition and any education-related service that fits their needs. It's just incredible to see not only a universal education choice program in place, but to see it in the form of an ESA. So I really do think that's the path forward uh, for so many kids across the country. Go ahead. There is such a huge hunger in this country for people to really revive a civil society. And there, the charity care we saw with the safe harbor, the private schools that are set up, there are so many in the healthcare space especially. There's so much pent up entrepreneurialism. We're all, we always have people coming to us with a new idea for a private solution to give people more options in health coverage. I'm a volunteer policy advisor to the Catholic Medical Association. They would so like to be able to do more charity care, but government has sw so swallowed up all of the opportunities and makes it so difficult that it's very, very hard for them to be able to really express their faith as, 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 as Sarah's doing through, through private care and private coverage. But just as with education, in the healthcare space, there's so much that the private sector wants to and could do if we just get Washington out of thinking it has all of the answers. Yeah, and, and so there's been a marginalization and as well, the erosion of religious liberty for them to practice, both in the education and the healthcare context, uh, to, to just be even able to survive, let alone be able to have resources flowing to them. Uh, this brings us to the issue of centralization. And in both spaces, healthcare and education, there is a clear uh, alternative path to the one you've described, which is uh, promoting greater centralization of healthcare, greater centralization of education. And most often, that is advanced in the name of the poor. This is going to be, we need to do this because it's going, this is what low-income uh, individuals across the country need. What is your response to that, Grace Marie? And then I'll ask Lindsay. When we see what they're doing right now with the Build Back Better Act, bill, it's not an act, with the Build Back Better bill, there's a provision in there that would basically make it impossible for churches to continue to run nursery schools because all of the teachers would have to have a college degree. They would only be able to have four children per person. That's $60,000 a year for those four children to just, just for the salary, not even counting all the overhead costs. It's basically going to put them out of business because they cannot meet the rules and the, with the funding that, with the resources and the, the 
fees that they could charge parents to be able to have nursery schools for children. This centralization of Washington, when, when the ACA passed, we started counting the number of changes that were made to try to make this law work. We, we gave up at 70 after the first five or six years. This Build Back Better Act is, bill is trying once again to throw more money at this program to try to fix it. It just does not work for Washington to control decisions that ha can only be made at the local level where the energy and the spirit are. I live in Loudoun County, and I'm telling you, this is a movement. People want to get involved and engaged, and I think education and healthcare are huge opportunities for people to say, let's build this from the bottom up. Thank you. Lindsay, can I just say ditto to, to all of that? And, you know, we could talk about childcare and preschool all day, yeah. honestly, just from the Build Back Better, Build Back Bureaucracy. We've been trying to make that oh, stick. Yeah. Build but, Back Bureaucracy. Right. That's good. <laughs> um, but we could talk about that all day. And honestly, we should, right? Because this is, I mean, the fact that the federal government is effectively trying to pull the K-12 system down two years earlier, and even earlier with the childcare provisions, this is effectively a birth through three. Right and then free federal preschool for four and five-year-old children across the country. Make no mistake about it, the beneficiaries of this plan are the teachers' unions. Uh, they have seen a, not a mass exodus, but an exodus in some parts, Loudoun, others, uh, from the traditional district system. And so this is one way, I think, where the, the unions see that they have an opportunity to maintain more control over the education system by expanding it down a few years earlier. And look, if you look at the polling that's out there on what families want, this runs counter 180 degrees to what families want when it comes to the education and care for their youngest children. Gallup has the figure around 57% for family preferences for relative care and in-home care. You can look at even more stark numbers from the Institute for Family Studies, which find that 14, only 14% of families prefer center-based care for their young children. So the fact that the federal taxpayer would now be required to subsidize a massive government-approved center-based option runs counter to the wishes of the vast majority of families across the country. And Grace Marie's exactly right. The regulatory uh, landslide that will befall religious providers in particular, everything that you outlined is exactly right. They are, in this provision, considered direct recipients of federal funds, which is just another layer uh, of bureaucracy that will limit their autonomy as religious providers. And we are going to see the crowding out, generally, of the private provision of preschool providers once you have large-scale government-approved providers, which the larger programs are the only ones that are able to respond to these government mandates in a way that they can stay afloat. So we will see massive crowd out of private provision of care, which ultimately at the end of the day limits choices for families. And of course will significantly increase costs. And I, I would just add a bit of an aside, but we know empirically that uh, these large scale preschool programs have a very limited impact on maternal labor supply. Uh, that shouldn't drive how we think about the efficacy of the policy, but you will often see proponents of government preschools say, well, the increase in maternal labor supply will help cover the cost of these programs, and it comes nowhere near achieving that goal, in addition to just being bad policy that runs counter to what families want. 
So I do think that's a, a good, bad example of the negative consequences of these large-scale federal programs. Um, I would just add, too, I mentioned Detroit a second ago. Uh, there is the amount of money of federal taxpayer spending that has gone out the door for schools, for K-12 education in particular, since the pandemic started. Detroit, which has now closed its doors on Friday, just Detroit received $1.3 billion in pandemic relief funding, which, if you do the math, according to the folks at Bellwether, Bellwether is about $25,000 per child. I mean, it is just, it's a breathtaking amount of money, and yet they can't figure out how to keep their doors open five days a week at this point, this far beyond the pandemic. So federal programs are, and federal policymakers are clearly not well positioned to meet the needs of families and put into place policies that are really reflective of what they need right now. So clearly, um, there are a lot of headwinds against the choice in healthcare, the choice in education that you both have described. And I'd like to ask you first, Grace Marie, what are you and allies doing to promote uh, good policy in in the face of those headwinds, to look forward to a better day and a future generation of reform? Uh, this is my wheel space. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So we have been working with in conjunction with Heritage and, and most of the think tanks around the country, state-based as well as the national think tanks that focus on health policy to develop the health care choices plan. Ed Hazelmeyer, I see in the back, has been a key key player in that. So is Marie Fishbaugh. I don't know if Marie is here. There's Marie. That have... that. We believe in you. We believe states, because you are closer to the people, are going to be able to solve the problems in our health sector that Washington clearly is failing to solve. All its, its solution is only more rules and regulation and more deficit spending thrown at the problem. We want to devolve power to you ultimately through you, ultimately to the patients, so you can give them more choices, so that you can allocate the dollars currently, the plan talks just about the ACA money, but it also could be a Medicaid money as well, Medicaid, in, in addition to give people the dignity of private choice and giving you the opportunities to help create those choices without Washington micromanaging everything you do. So the healthcare choices plan, if you give me your card later, we um, will send you a copy of the plan. Also, Brian Blaze has just started a new think tank called Paragon Health Institute, and he's his first publication is a book saying, don't wait for Washington health reform initiatives that states can take on right now. There was a there's a program on the books called called Section 1332 of the ACA that allows you to get a portion of the money that's going to, to support ACA plans to do a better job of taking care of the vulnerable. And isn't that really what public programs should be about, doing a better job of taking care of the vulnerable so that we can allocate resources to give people a ladder to success so that if you have job, job requirements, the health plan they have looks more like a private plan that they would get when they go to work. So it, it, so, so many of the solutions have the same roots, Lindsay, don't they? In giving more power and authority to you, ultimately to give it to the people, dignity of choice, empowering the private sector to expand those choices, and making sure that public programs take care of those who really don't have any other option. Let's see. 
Well, we in the education space are in maybe a more enviable position in that the federal government at least is still just about a 10% stakeholder in all education financing. So thankfully, the vast majority of education policy is still, even at this point, made at the state and local level. Uh, there's a lot we have to both combat and think about reforming through federal policy. I mentioned portability of existing federal funds earlier, allowing states to opt out of things like the Elementary and Secondary Education Act to be able to better direct existing dollars toward local priorities. But really the action is at the state level. And we have seen over the past year, you can look at the outcomes in Virginia most recently, but parents are clamoring to have more control to be partners, not just passive recipients of whatever government school that they are forced to open their wallets and fund. And so we're actually seeing some responsiveness now, I think, at both the state and district level to make sure families have that opportunity. And so I think the solution at the state level uh, is both radical transparency, but coupled with teeth. And those teeth, of course, are the ability to exit your local school that's not responsive to your needs or accountable directly to you as a parent through education choice options. So we are seeing more and more districts think about moving in that direction we're certainly seeing a groundswell of families saying, I should not have to file a FOIA request to know what my child's school is teaching. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to continue to see more momentum in that direction as, as we move forward in the next few months, where schools basically open the books when it comes to what they're teaching children. They open the books when it comes to the budgets that they have in place. We actually just saw a federal proposal put forward this week uh, along those lines as well, where Schools that receive federal funding should have to be transparent around content, budgets, school board meetings, et cetera. So there is some momentum at the federal level as well. But uh, we are at the point now where 31 states have some form of private school choice in place. And that is, it's incredible to me. I know Jennifer knows the numbers, but you know, it was just two decades ago where we had four states that had some form of private school choice. So the fact that we're up to 31 most of those are targeted, most of those are means tested, but like I said, West Virginia now, universal program, we are really starting to see momentum for this general idea that we should fund families directly, not physical school buildings, and allow them to select into learning environments that align with their values. One little data point, yesterday the Loudoun County School System announced that it's going to put on hold construction of five schools because enrollment is falling in the Loudoun County School System. Well, this has been a very encouraging presentation about the options that we need to pursue. And we at the Heritage Foundation are committed to pursuing the work of uh, fighting poverty with all the kinds of proposals that you've heard today. We have only just begun to scratch the surface of what needs to be done to allow for uh, greater flourishing and prosperity of those in need. Uh, we've held, heard a, a wealth of ideas, and uh, it is truly a generation's worth of uh, things that will need to be done. And we thank, we are thankful for the commitment of those who have presented today. Uh, we need the commitment of many more people, and we hope that uh, young people today who are interested in uh, serving their neighbors in need will consider the kinds of callings that have been uh, profiled here today. We need so much more work. Uh, the Heritage Foundation looks forward to joining arms with all those who are committed uh, to raising up uh, these, these solutions. Uh, thank you for being here today. Please join me in thanking our last panel.